following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's among the favorites of our guest today. He's a successful playwright and screenwriter with over 50 credits to his name. Plays include uh, They Stole Hemingway's Brain and the award-winning play Bigger. For screenplays, he's garnered several awards along the way and has written films such as I Love You Baby and Fallen Rocks, starring Maximilian Schell and Christopher Waltz, respectively. He's also the screenwriter for the 1998 film Goodbye Lover, starring Patricia Arquette and directed by Roland Joff. This film has a unique story that we'll get into a little bit later. His current project, called The Boy, the Dog, and the Clown, can be seen on Amazon and other streaming services. We became friends as a result of our affinity for John Barry, but before you think this is going to turn into a Barry love fest, think again, and I think you'll see why. Please join me in welcoming to the program Ron Peer. Hi, Ron. Hey, Frank, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good, and I've really been looking forward to this. Uh, like a lot of my guests, we uh, we connected on Facebook a number of years ago, and and uh, we've communicated that way, and this is the first time we're actually talking, uh, so that's always a treat for me. So I appreciate you taking time to join the program today. Oh, you are welcome. I love film music, so given a chance to talking about it, I seize the opportunity. That's good. Yeah, and I can tell. I can tell from, from your list that you love it. Um, as you may recall, and our guests and our uh, listeners certainly know, we usually like to start off to learn a little bit about our guests uh, outside of the film industry and whatnot. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, growing up and family and things like that. Well, I am a Phoenix native, and... Um, I have uh, one brother and, you know, not a large family, but mm -hmm. I grew, grew up here in Phoenix, and I was always kind of a nerdy child, I guess you would say, and I started, um, I was kind of a big book reader, and I started reading books voraciously when I was, I was a child. I actually probably read the James Bond series when I was nine years old, something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, very early, and that led to, you know, starting to write and doodle things. And then later on, I actually, um, in high school, I worked at a bookstore that was near uh, my high school. That was, it was such a fabulous job. I loved it. You know, it was, I had access to so many books. Uh, I met a lot of friends. I still have them t today. And then um, in college, I went to ASU. I studied business. Um, I continued to work in bookstores. Actually, actually, after I graduated, I managed a bookstore in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And um, 
later on, I um, owned my own bookstore, but that wasn't until probably the 1990s, actually. But that, um, I, uh, it's interesting how you were you were studying business, and yet and 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 you did use that degree to a certain degree, I guess, when you became a small business owner. But what uh, what transpired that took you away from a, a focus on business and getting into more things like writing, screenwriting, and playwriting? Well, to tell you the truth, I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, ever since I was a kid, that was kind of my goal. Mm -hmm. But then as you, you listen to everybody's sob stories about how hard it is to break in, you know, and I was more really wanting to be a novelist than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, you know, a difficult field. People were kind of complaining. And so I thought, well, if I have something to fall back on, then, you know, if I fail, then I can always be in the business world. So that's what happened in that regard. Then yeah, after... Was smart. <laughs> Yeah. Then after that, I decided, you know, I was working outside. I was managing a bookstore and I went, you know, I really miss getting my English degree. I really wanted to get an English degree. So I went back and got a bachelor's in English. Oh, wow. And I, yeah. And then at that point, um, I started to meet some people and I got into playwriting, um, an M MFA program at ASU. And that kind of really kickstarted me into writing again and thinking about it in a different way. I mean, I always like plays. I always like different forms of dramatic writing. Uh, comedy, I wrote some comedy when I was actually a teenager for a radio station in high school mm. and called here, locally called KTAR. And um, it was with a, another friend and his mother and she was a live personality on the show. So we'd write some skits together and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about uh, your career as, as we go along with the program today. I, I need to tell our listeners that, that Ron has made my job very difficult today. He could not narrow, narrow down his list to uh, the typical five or seven cues that we usually do. So we're going to try to fit in quite a bit today. And that's, that's, you're going to like that because we're going to hear a lot of music. Now, surely, today. surely I can't be the only one with that problem, Frank. Uh, well, most people follow instructions. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're no, short I, cues. They're I short know. cues, and I've trimmed a few, you know, just to try and pack them in there. So I you know. know you did. I know you did. But listen, I can't blame you. I think if I were asked to do the same thing, I'd have a, a big challenge of my, uh, on my on my own. Uh, you started off. Uh, you've got a terrific list here. I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Uh, let's start off with a. Uh, a uh, film from the early 60s written by uh, one of my favorite composers, Henry Mancini. I'm talking about the film uh, Charade. Tell us a little bit about why that made your list of favorites. Well, I think, you know, Henry Mancini was such a force in the 60s of songwriting as well as composing for film. Well, even in the 50s. I mean, come on, um, mm. you know, who can deny Peter Gunn? And it, it's just such a a song and a piece of music that is ingrained in our culture. You know, you hear that and the, the pink Panther, you know, yeah. um, but charade has always been a movie that I loved ever since I saw it as a kid. Cary Grant is great. Audrey Hepburn is great. And, um, it has a certain lightness to it and fun and playful. And I think Henry Mancini did a great job with the main theme. You know, it's kind of mystery intrigue, but once again, it's melody and, you know, so many of my selections here you're going to notice are all based on melody because that's really what attracts me to music to begin with is if it's got a catchy melody melody then i listen you know it gets my ear so exactly uh, yeah, yeah no, you you know i agree with that as well so, and, and this is a good example of it let's uh let's have a listen this is the main theme from the film charade and it's written by henry mancini 
you had another interesting choice too uh, in terms of uh, cues. Uh, it's interesting too because I have a love-hate relationship with this film because it's a James Bond film, but it's but it's not. It was a a parody that was done in 1967. It's uh, actually called Casino Royale. Now we could spend 20 minutes giving you the backstory about how all that happened, but uh, one of the redeeming features of the film, in fact, maybe the only one, is quite frankly the music. It is a terrific score. Uh, you chose a cue uh, here. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about this cue that you chose. Uh, this is written by Burt Bacharach from the film uh, Casino Royale. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, like you say, the score is absolutely fantastic. It is so catchy. It is so fun. Um, you know, I was trying to find a, a cue that wasn't too long. Most of the cues actually are fairly short for this film. But this yeah. one I thought it was kind of catchy. Um, it just has sort of a nice flavor to it, as does the whole score. But um, so I thought, well, and, and I like the drums at the beginning. There's there, there's a lot of things in it. You know, the, the album is just so much fun. And for your audio files that it used to be that this LP was really scarce and difficult to get um, back in its day because audio files would use that to sort of test their their sound systems. It was so well mastered and engineered. That's that what I've heard. Man. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And when I used to play it, of course, on my the the original LP on my system, um, it sounded terrific. It was just excellent. And there's just so many good stuff. The look of love from that song, the title oh, song, yeah. of course, you know, um, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. But you know, the, there's just a lot of good stuff in it. Just I'm so gonna good. have I'm gonna have to one day because I do still have a turntable. I have to I'll have to bring that out. I got a feeling my album is not necessarily in that mint condition, but. But you're right. I've heard that that audiophiles really love this this record. Let's uh, let's hear it for ourselves. Uh, I'm, I'm, let me see. I got to look it up here. The cue is called uh, what was it Money Penny? It was uh, uh, Money Penny Goes for Broke is the name of the cue. It's from the score Casino Royale and it's written by Bert Bacharach. You were talking about um, 
everybody telling you how difficult it was to get into screenwriting, playwright, and because I, you know, I can imagine as an outsider, it's well, it's like acting, which I'm involved in. It's highly competitive and difficult to break into. So, what's your story? How did you? I mean, you you kind of alluded to a little bit of it, but what's your story as far as for getting to the big time, but, but, you know, beyond writing skits for radio stations and a, and a college play, because you've had some major success. How did that come about? Do you think? Well, it's interesting. I'll try and keep this kind of short, but, um, when I was at school, ASU, um, there were a bunch of other friends and we were writers and we kind of banded together and we decided, well, we're going to try and market our screenplays. And so we formed this little writers collective called United Screenwriters of Phoenix. And hmm. we, um, sent out some, some query letters to different agents trying to get people interested in our work. We created this brochure and we sent it out and I think we sent it to a hundred different agencies and we got like two calls and one of them was like, who are you guys? What? <laughs> and um, so we explained and then we just didn't go anywhere. Well, then in the early days of the Internet, I was um, on one of the AOL boards and people were talking about some screenwriting contests. And I noticed uh, they, they were saying that, you know, even though they didn't win the contest, they were able to, if they got recognition of some kind, placed well in the contest, they could get agents to read their work. So I thought, oh, well, there's a great idea. There you go. So so I had just written this script called goodbye lover and um and i was like ah okay well this seems like a good one to do so i packaged it up and i sent it to a couple of contests the nickel fellowship contest which is kind of the premier screenwriting contest and then another one called the austin film festival contest and the this film festival was kind of in its early days i think it was the second year but the the, the first year winner she was named max adams and she'd gotten her script produced through that. So I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll try those two. So lo and behold, I did. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from the guy who ran the Nickel Fellowship saying, oh, there's a producer who read your script and he's very interested in talking to you. I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. So then I, yeah. So I spoke to him and his name was David Foster. He was a really well-known producer. He did the original Getaway with Steve McQueen. He did the River Wild. He told me, you know, he really liked the script and, you know, can I show it around to people? And I said, yeah, okay. And so he did, and it was promptly rejected everywhere. <laughs> In the meantime, through the Austin Film Festival, there was another team of producers who'd read it, and they wanted to do something with it. So I was able to kind of play them off of each other, you know. <laughs> and um, lo and behold, and then when they – David Foster never talked about money you know, of any kind, giving me an option or anything. So I was sort of like, uh. And the other producers um, you know, were starting to talk money, so that – you know actually got my attention of course right and so um i said okay well i can't really do anything because the contests are both in session so i i can't really do anything until it's over and so they were like uh all right we'll try and wait so lo and behold the contest ended i didn't win i placed kind of high but i did not win and um so these this team and they were actually guys who used to work for miramax at the time they said, well, you know, we really want your script. We like it. We have somebody, another script in mind if you don't want to go with us. And so we did an option, and that was in October. And then in the meantime, they had actually sent it to New Regency, you know, a huge um, production company in L.A., massive. And the next thing I know, in January, I was flying out to meet Roland Joffe, the director. So wow. it happened so fast. This never happens. I, I mean, if I look back at it now, but I knew nothing then. But looking back at it now, it's just it never happens that way. You're right. It's, yeah. 
That's a great story. That's a great story. And we're going to talk about that film a little bit later in the program. But um, that's a great story how that came about. And it just goes to show you that for for those of you that are dreamers out there, like myself and, and like many others, I'm sure, that are trying to, to break into the industry, it you go through a lot of rejection. But all of a sudden, one day, boom, it can happen. It doesn't always happen, but it can so that's that's great. That's great. Um, let's switch gears and go back to, to film music for a moment. Uh, another score you had chosen that I think is is real popular amongst uh, aficionados is a film called Where Eagles Dare. Ah. I think it's I think it's Ron Goodwin. I think is the composer's name. Yes. Tell us a little bit about including that in your uh, list of favorites. Well, once again, this is another film that I've always loved with Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. Um, you know, from an classic Alistair McLean novel, but actually at the time he'd written the screenplay first and then it became a novel afterward. Mm. But um, Ron Goodwin was kind of known for doing a lot of uh, military themes and scores at that time. He did 633 Squadron, he did the Battle of Britain, and then he did Mm. this film. And I think this um, score is great. They actually, the initial release, they used a lot of uh, kind of incidental music cues that on like the second half that was not so good but then they actually finally released the full length score and it is terrific if you have the whole thing but it's oh. just it's just exciting there were like some really great uh sequences in it um there's a chase to the airfield which i didn't select here but that's a wonderful sequence but they kind of all incorporate the main theme as well you know okay. there's so- sort of that tendency in in the 60s I would, say, I would say with composers to kind of find the main theme and then just sort of interpolate it, you know, throughout the score. Um, it seemed to be very common at that point, even yeah. into the seventies. And, and of course our, our idol, John Barry did it a lot too. Yeah. And continued to do it you know, throughout yes. his entire career or so, but let's, uh, let's have a listen to this uh, for ourselves. This is the main title from the film where Eagles dare, and it's written by Ron Goodwin.
sticking with the uh, big sounding kind of epic type films and another uh, score that you chose was uh, how the West was won. Uh, trying to think here. Yeah, Alfred Newman, who, I mean, obviously is a, a giant in film music. Uh, talk us through that a little bit. That, that made your favorites. How come? Well, once again, this is probably um, because I saw this film as a child. It initially came out in Cinerama, I believe, you know, which is like a three camera process. So it was oh, very, right. yeah. yeah. So it was very widescreen. And um, the music has always stuck with me, especially this main title. You know, um, it's been stolen and used in other films, but it's just so evocative kind of of the West. And the theme is so you know, hummable, whistleable, whistleable, if that's a word. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it's so catchy, you know. And then, of course, the Newman family is just is very talented. We have Thomas Newman and Randy Newman and David Newman, all from, you know, the same family originally. Yeah, so, but then, this one, once again, is. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, once again, it's just. Um, it's just one of those scores from the 60s that I think is kind of iconic, especially this main theme. You know, it's you just know, yeah, the, the unfortunately and I you know, I have to plead. You know, the, I haven't seen it. Um, how does that how does that translate into into home video with the, the, the Cinerama thing? I mean, did they do you know? I mean, I, or did you see it on did you see it in, in originally in a cinema that had Cinerama in it? And and, uh, and how does it translate to home video? I wonder, did they just use the main middle camera for that or? Yes. Well, actually, I've seen it on television, too. And in the early days, you could actually see these seams where they kind of put the three together on the screen. And it was kind of horrible. But then, you know, then they later, later did pan and scan, you know, to try and, I think, keep everything in frame. But I think now if you were to buy the film, I have not seen the home video release. I imagine, you know, since everybody has the big screen TVs, it's going to be very widescreen, um, probably very narrow bar, you know, right. across the top. But um, huh. and the cast was, you know, huge cast of, of people at the time. They really they were really trying to fight TV and the influence of TV. So they were doing all those epic films, you know, Dr. Zhivago and uh, this film and and uh, Lawrence of Arabia. They were kind of roadshow films, you know. Right. Yeah. And you're right. That was a direct response to the competition with TV. Well, this this will make my list. And I'm, I'm trying to go back. I have a 22 year old daughter that. Uh, Loves films, but, uh, you know, she hasn't seen a lot of older ones. And, of course, a lot of times the response is, yeah, it's an old movie. But then we'll show it to her, and she loves it. So this this might be one that we'll uh, share with her. Let's uh, let's hear to the music part of this. And this is, this is uh, the title theme from the film How the West Was Won, and it's written by Alfred Newman.
mentioned that uh, you were interested in being a novelist, and I'm and I'm curious because I'm I'm not a writer, far from it. But how is if if at all how is screenwriting different than than uh, writing a novel? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know. And, and this is my own perception, but I don't know why. I, I've been working on a novel, and I think I'm going to throw out what I have and start again. But, <laughs> you know, screenplays, they have a certain structure. They're limited by the amount of pages you can do. So it's it's very kind of controlled. And, you know, you see it on the screen, the result of your product. In a novel, you read the product, you know. It's mm-hmm. very personal, individual to the reader. And so I think that... Um, I get a little intimidated by that, you know, and but it's something I'm going to do before I die, I swear. And <laughs> I've got some ideas for, you know, maybe a series that I want to do. I love police procedurals and I'm thinking of going in that direction. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But it's just, um, you know, it, it's it's a lot of words as <laughs> as another screenwriter, uh, John August, likes to say. He's written uh, a series now of novels, and he talks about how difficult it is to keep it going. Interesting. And and do and do are any good examples of novelists that have tried to write a screenplay and find it uh, di- difficult as well, just in the opposite direction? Well, you know, there have been a lot of novelists that have written screenplays. Um, probably the most well-known because he did so many movies would be William Goldman. Mm. And uh, he's written two great books. Adventures in the Screen Trade is the first one. And he talks about being a novelist in his early days and then getting hired to do films and how to adapt his books. And because a lot of it, some of his books would have little tricks in them that, that, you know, you have a character, but you don't say exactly who that character is when you're reading it. But you find out later that it's actually this character we've met before. Well, in a film, you can't do that because we would reveal that that person is this person. You know, I'm thinking right. of, of a, a book called Marathon Man. There's a character in there that you find out is actually somebody else's oh, relation. Okay. And so it's it's very, um, very difficult to do. So he talks about having to reformulate and recalculate things. But I'd say he's probably the best known um, for adapting his works. Okay. And being a screenwriter in general, he was a, a great writer. I really liked him. He always thought he was a terrible writer himself. <laughs> he, he hated his own work and he wouldn't reread it. It's really funny. He's that's funny. Uh, you uh, another uh, cue that you had chosen is uh, by another composer that I have a great affinity for. I'm talking about a film called Villa Rides, uh, written by Maurice Jar. Tell us the story behind uh, that, uh, making your list of favorites. Well, once again, like Maurice Jar is another one who was, you know, um, so popular in the 60s that I didn't want to leave him out. So this particular track, um, uh, well, jumping back a little bit. So Maurice Jar's music, you know, he did Dr. Zhivago. He did um, Lawrence of Arabia. But the actual recordings themselves were not the best quality. I I, I don't know why. So there have been lots of re-recordings over the years of, of these scores to, you know, bring them, bring up the fidelity. And so this particular film, you know, the original score is kind of like, eh, it's okay as far as recording. But this is once again, you know, an example of his gift for melody. And um, this particular track version is re-recorded from Nick Rain and the City of Prague Orchestra. Oh. So 
And uh, Nick Rain's a great guy. You should have him on your show. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. If he's out there listening, I've been trying to contact you. <laughs> wow. All right. So, um, you know, he was just such an icon that um, once again, that I felt like, well, we should probably I shouldn't leave him out, you know. Yeah. And and I really like this particular piece of music. Like I say, my selections are probably more personal based than than trying to um, kind of be the be all end it all of soundtrack music. It's just things that have kind of stuck. Oh, sure. Years. Yeah. That, and that's that's the whole point of it. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and and you're right, Nick and and the City of Prague Orchestra have done a great job in restoring and recording music that uh, that needs to and deserves to be recorded. So this will be a great example of that. This is a this is from the film Villa Rides. It's the uh, title track, and it's written by Maurice Jar. Thank you. 
I know you made a point of saying that this was a particular uh, favorite of yours, and, and it is of mine, too, because it's almost kind of like the music is played straight for something that's not exactly meant to be straight. Uh, we're talking about the music from the film called uh, Stripes, uh, written by Elmer Bernstein, who had a long and distinguished uh, career. Tell us a little bit about uh, including that here on your list of favorites. Yeah, so once again, um, this was a film that came out that I, I I loved, but, you know, Elmer Bernstein had so many big hits in the 60s, again, The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, just mm-hmm. magnificent scores, haha, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then he kind of, in the 70s, he seemed to be struggling and kind of fi- finding his way, and um, then John Landis was hired to direct Animal House, and he decided he really wanted um, an Elmer Bernstein score. So the studio, as I understand it, did not think Elmer Bernstein was a great choice, hmm. but um, they brought him in. And he did a, a great score for Animal House. So the next thing you know, Elmer Bernstein kind of became the guy to go to these kind of goofy late 70s, early 80s movies, you know, um, for scores, Airplane, Trading Places, and this particular one um, with Bill Murray's Stripes which is uh, just a fun movie. I saw that in the theater with some friends and uh, just we laughed hysterically. So um, it has pleasant memories for me. Yeah. And you, and actually you bring up, the. you're right. He did have, he did have a stretch of films that he did there that had that kind of a common theme to them. And it was almost like a little bit of a Renaissance for him. So that's interesting. Let's, uh, let's hear this for ourselves. This is the, uh, what's referred to as the stripes March. And this is from the film stripes and it's written by, Elmer Bernstein.
All right, I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, in, in during the course of making a film because you have had the the opportunity to have several several of your scripts uh, produced in the in the feature length films. Does the I mean I think I know the answer to this, but still might be interesting to talk about. Uh, as a writer, are you are you actually on set when they're filming? Because it seems to me like you're very early in and on in, in the process and. You know, once you've kind of finished your work, it's, you know, you would go away. But so are you on set while they're filming a lot of times or does it vary depending on the project? I would say it varies depending on the project. Um, it, it really does. Sometimes the writer is welcome. Sometimes the writer is not. You know, <laughs> on Goodbye Lover, um, I went to the set a couple of times to see some things. But like most films, and, and most people don't realize this, the writers that are credited on a film are usually just the tip of the iceberg of the number of writers that actually worked on the film. Mm. The, the credits for a film, uh, you know, for the screenplay are determined by the Writers Guild of America. So it can get quite hot and contested about who wrote what, who's going to get the credit. And um, on Goodbye Lover, I was the, the original writer. Obviously, I wrote the screenplay, uh, the original screenplay. And then they brought in, you know, some other writers to come in and they kind of rewrote me. Um, Mm. Then Buck Henry actually came on oh, wow. and worked on the script for a little while, um, for about 27 pages, I think. And then he left. And so then when we got to shooting, you know, I was welcomed. I, I went to L.A. a couple of times. But the irony is that um, one of the scenes I was visiting, I had never written. And once I had seen all of the versions of the, the drafts of the script, I was like, eh, this scene is not going to make it to the movie. And of course it didn't make it into the movie, <laughs> but um, another time I was on the set with, um, with Don Johnson and we we're seeing a scene that was written. Don Johnson hit a, he was hiding in his trailer a lot because uh, the press at the time, uh, he was having a hard time with Melanie Griffith, I guess. Oh, and, okay. and so the press was lurking about, and he didn't want to be anywhere where they could, you know, get photos or talk to him. So, but that uh, was an interesting experience. It's, it's, you know, if you've been on sets, and I know you have, it's a very slow process. Ooh, yes. So much slower than probably people realize because there's so many things that have to be lined up and, you know, uh, just to get the lighting right is, is probably the biggest thing. And figuring out, you know, the blocking and how the camera is going to move. And it's just it's just very um, boring, to tell you the truth. So, <laughs> it is. But it's a and... good time to sit and write if you're on set, you know, work on I another bet. project. Yeah. So and and so have you have you conducted rewrites, you know, like on the spot sometimes? Have you been uh, asked to do that? Well, yes. I mean, on, on the recent film, The Boy, the Dog and the Clown, which is kind of a low budget film. And I was one of the producers and, and writers. So we actually were running out of time. So we had to uh, kind of rewrite the ending and kind of reconceptualize that. So mm-hmm. we did that during the shoot. But that's not uncommon for low budget projects, you know. Yeah. Okay. I was curious. To, to tell you the truth, the difference is money and time. If you've got more time, you can do a much better job. And if you've got more money, it's the same story, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I remember uh, when I worked on some AV projects uh, at a corporation, I remember the guy who used to be the head of that department used to say, there's three things you got to consider. Uh, good, fast, and cheap, but you can only pick two. You can have it good and you can have it fast, but it won't be cheap. You can have it good and cheap, but it won't be fast. And, you know, any, all the yeah. different scenarios. And actually it was a good way to 
he was spot on with that. So it was interesting. Um, so, so yeah. True. Going back to the scores you picked out. I mean, here's one I know a lot of people uh, share your passion for. Um, talking about a, a score from the film uh, The Mission, written by, I guess, maybe one of the most prolific uh, film composers in history, uh, Ennio Morricone. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, making your list of favorites. Well, Ennio Morricone is is one of my favorite composers of all time. And, you know, initially, well, when you asked me to do this, I knew I was going to include a Morricone piece. It was just a matter of which one. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Once yeah. Upon a Time in America is fantastic. Once Upon a Time in the West is great. And I played with those two. And then I thought, well, maybe maybe a lesser track from the mission. Um, and, and since this film was actually directed by Roland Jaffe, who directed Goodbye Lover. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought, well, maybe this will be a, um, a nice piece. And, and this is a short little cue called The Mission. And it kind of encapsulates the main theme, which is kind of a a rising and falling um, theme, which is in another cut called um, The Falls in in the film. I don't know if you've seen the film or not, but um, it's pretty good. And uh, there's another track called Gabriel's Oboe that is very popular. It's been taken out and played by symphonies all across the world. Hmm. Um, But, you know, Morricone had a great gift for melody, as, as you know. Oh yeah, just, oh yeah. Well, I I, I shouldn't say had because he's still alive, but that's right. Yeah, he's fact, getting I, I up think, there. Yeah. I think a mutual friend of ours re- recently attended a, a concert that he was at. I think in, in back in Europe, but I, I could be wrong. Mm. Um, let's have a listen to this. This is from the film The Mission, 1986, and it's uh, written by I think it's safe to say the maestro Ennio Morricone.
another uh, another film you highlighted uh, on your list is a particular favorite of mine. It's somewhat obscure these days. I don't. Some people I'm sure have heard of it, but I just loved it. Uh, the film was called Capricorn One and written by by probably the only composer in my mind that comes close to John Barry. And I'm talking about Jerry Goldsmith. Tell me a little bit about uh, you, this was the end titles cue that you had chose for this. What what are some of the reasons for this making your list? Well, once again, Jerry Goldsmith is a big name in the world of of uh, cinema music. So I knew I had to, to include something. And, and this particular cut um, is kind of reflective of the main title, too. It has the same yes. theme in it. But it's 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 just kind of kind of incorporates everything, I think. That's mm-hmm. kind of throughout the film. But um, and and I saw that film in the theater when it came out and I thought it was a lot of fun. That director, Peter Hyams, was uh, kind of doing a great job back then. He would do um, thrillers that had a good sense of humor to them. Um, yeah. Yet he um, he would pull in good composers as well. So I really liked his work. That film was fun. As you know, it's about um, faking a um, trip to um, Mars, basically. Right. Yeah. And so the whole the whole premise is reminiscent of of, you know, faking the moonwalk. And did we really go to the moon? Did we not? And, and then this, this is a spin on that, but just setting it on Mars. And uh, it's a fun idea. But Jerry Goldsmith, um, you know, did a great job with this. It's kind of a rhythmic theme. Um, there's a few of his scores where he really kind of focuses on rhythm and then others he doesn't. But um, I think you'll you'll enjoy this one if you haven't heard it before. Yeah, and I think I think the rhythm or was was intended to kind of show all the twists and turns of the movie and how it was you know what you see isn't what you what you isn't necessarily real and then the music was trying to communicate that. So yeah, I love this piece and so uh, sit back and enjoy. I think you'll enjoy this one. Uh, this is the the end title sequence from uh, the movie Capricorn Run, uh, and it's written by Jerry Goldsmith.
you know, as an actor, I, I, I need to, I need to ask you this question because I'd be really interested in, in what your thoughts are on this. Uh, being a writer in your, and I realize maybe it's not your choice to make. Sometimes it <laughs> might be the director's, but do, in your view, do the actors need to be word perfect with your script? Well, no, because the first thing you realize, especially when you've done a lot of theater, that sometimes you have too many words and it's it's a common curse because you want to get your ideas across. And sometimes mm-hmm. you think you need to put these words in to say it. But so many times the actors can just do it with a look. They can just, you know, a behavior, the way they a glance, the look away and they can communicate well, what you've got. So usually, you know, I say give them free reign to do what they should not too crazy because you still need to stick to plot points if there are some in there. But definitely um, you need to let the actor do his own thing. You know, that's why he was hired. Generally, I think uh, a director like Clint Eastwood, that's basically his kind of philosophy is he gives very little direction. He he carefully selects his actors and then he lets them run with it. He's, you know, known as a one take mm-hmm. director. And that's it. He moves on. He almost always comes in um, under budget and under under his allotted shooting schedule. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. But it's just a matter of selecting the right people to begin with, you know, and 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 letting them play with it. Yeah, because from my perspective, what I I sometimes find it very difficult to I mean, I certainly want to capture the character and I want to be true to it. But sometimes the words just don't come out of my mouth the way that they're written doesn't seem natural to me i'm not being critical of what's written down it's just what what i can get to come out of my mouth that still feels organic and real and uh that's why i was curious about asking you that question because i i do know that there are some writers and certainly directors that absolutely positively insist on word perfect and uh, so that's why i was really curious about it yeah, um, I wonder if those are tend to be more writer directors who are more focused on that. I think the be. more I think the more that you've written or you know been around these things, you're not as precious as you initially are when you start out. You know, when every word is my word and I will not have them destroyed. You know, it's yeah, it's a myth. Well, and I you know I mean I under I understand that. I mean I, you labored over this this baby of yours and you worked real hard to probably pick and choose every single word to make sure that it was perfect. So I can understand the, the attachment to it from the writer's standpoint, but I I just wanted to look at it from a different angle and see what you said. So I I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Let's see. You had, uh, here's one that I, I'm kind of ashamed to guess again to say I haven't seen it, but I, I, it's one of those things I want to at some point I'm talking about a film called Conan the Barbarian. Um, you, uh, you chose that among your list of favorites. So give us a little bit of a breakdown on, on why that made your list. Well, Basil Poliduris was a very, um, talented composer and it's a shame that he died early. He died young, but Conan Mm -hmm. the Barbarian came out in 1982 and, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, kind of one of these big kind of epic sword and sorcery kind of things. And the film itself is not that great. I think Oliver Stone was the screenwriter on it. But hmm. um, once you heard the music, you it, it just totally blew me away. The whole score is just so great and melodic. And it, um, it, you just can't 
it just can't be not denied. You got to listen to it, Frank. If you don't know the score, mm. you will be you will be blown away. And um, that immediately I went, whoa, who is this guy? And this is a pretty early score from him. Mm-hmm. And I had, was not familiar with his work at all until this. And then it just became one of my favorites after uh, after I purchased it. And and they've actually released expanded scores on this. I think even Nick Rain has done a an expanded score as well. Isn't it great how they're they're they are going back into the archives and and because uh, I, I know there's a lot of hoops to join uh, the jump through to get this done. But they are going back and, and re-releasing with some additional music that wasn't available before. And it's just, oh, it's just so great when they're able to do that. Oh, it's so terrific. I mean, you know, look at the James Bond films with all those re-releases. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is night and day from the original recordings to the additional music. You know? Yeah, it's it great is. to have that. Oh, let's um, Let's have a listen to this. This is a, uh, oh, I lost my place there. This is called Anvil of Crom. Is that is that correct? The, yes. The yes. It's from Conan the Barbarian, yes. and it's written it, it's by. It's basically. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's basically the the intro theme. Okay. All right, and it's uh, written by Basil Polidorus. Another uh, 
this is this is another film I haven't seen, and I maybe I should. Um, and it, by a composer that I know has a very uh, strong following, very passionate following. The film I'm talking about is Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and uh, the the uh, composer is Danny Elfman. Give me a little bit of background about how that would uh, make your list of uh, favorites. Well, I think this is the first film that was scored by Danny Elfman, actually. Is and, it really? Oh. Yeah, I believe so. I'm, I might be wrong. He might have done maybe something else. But this is, um, you know, he would later become a huge name in, in the film score world. But this, you kind of, with like his premier thing, and it is so um, melodic with great rhythms this particular um, cut is very, um, as you can tell, it's very fun, playful, and the whole Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I mean, you know, the movie's not great necessarily, but it's 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 fun, and the music just totally encapsulates and adds, I think, so much to the the movie itself that it is a perfect example of score meeting film. You just you just can't deny it. Okay, well, let's have a listen to it for ourselves. This is a from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It is the uh, cue is called the breakfast machine and it's written by Danny Elfman.
Now I'm curious if um, now that you're kind of in a position to, to be able to do this, what um, what advice would you have for the budding screenwriters that I know of a few that probably do listen to this program? Is there any sage advice you would be able to give them about uh, about screenwriting and, and getting getting into that world? Well, first of all, write, 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 write some more <laughs> and write. You really have to, if you, you know, you can't be a one script wonder. It just doesn't really happen that way. I mean, mm-hmm. my script got produced, but I'd written many before that. I'd written a number of plays. So uh, it, it's something that you just have to kind of keep learning. A lot of people say, I see as many movies as possible and learn. You know, that's great advice. Read as many screenplays as possible if you can. There are so many sites out there where you can download them and you can compare what's on the page versus what's on the screen. My number one advice, though, is make the script a a reading experience itself. Mm. Forget that it's a movie, but that the the script itself has to pull the reader in. You've got to turn those pages, you know, and, and keep the reader going before you can even get to the movie stage. So that would be my first piece of advice. Yeah, and I and I do find that with some scripts, it is uh, unlike a novel. Occasionally, a novel will get me that way, but but I have noticed that uh, there are some scripts that's like I can't help myself. I got to keep going. You know, I just I want to keep I want to finish this, and it's a that is a mark of a good script. Um, I guess I'm old enough now to where I can say things like these days or my day or whatever, but. Sometimes this wall-to-wall music that goes on in a lot of films, it just that just doesn't work for me. It ends up becoming white noise when you've got uh, not only you know wall-to-wall music, but also you know just a big orchestra sound the entire time. Uh, sometimes that silence or no music can make make a scene powerful than, than adding music to it. Do you, do you agree? Yes, I do agree. You you cut out for a second there. That's why. I'm oh, okay. Supposed. Um, I do agree. The wall-to-wall music thing is uh, – let's not go crazy, people, okay? Like you say, you do need silences in order to enhance the music you know, yeah. as well. And um, particularly some of the modern scoring with these sort of pulsations that sometimes run under the store da, 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 <laughs> that uh, just serve to make noise, I, I just don't care for that much. Yeah, yeah. This next cue that uh, we were going to highlight – is of interest to me if for no other reason because of the composer uh because of the the james bond film that's about to get released i'm talking about music from a film called the rock now i'm assuming because you had sent me some information about this is this kind of like one of those written by the hans zimmer group in other words it's uh because he has he has a variety of composers that he works with that all uh, it seems to me early on in his career, he used to get the sole credit, even though he'd have other people working on it. But now there's he spreads that credit around. Is that am I pretty accurate in what I'm saying there? Well, I would say yes. I mean, um, he is known for that. He actually at a time I have a friend who is a German in um, L.A. And when he had his studio in um, Santa Monica and he had his German group there and they were composing and, you know, his uh, they're his protégés, basically. And how much of it he writes, how much other people write, I, I don't really know. And I Man. don't know that we will ever know necessarily. <laughs> but what he does do is he gets to highlight these people and he recommends them for other films. So almost all of his protégés have gone on 
and and done their own films. So he's kind of given them a boost in their career. So a lot of people, you know, get angry that, oh, they're not being credited. And but he's really he seems to be a really nice guy. And I've seen him at his concerts and he he calls people out and he highlights various uh, players, you know, musicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, he seems to be very generous in that regard. Oh, that's neat to hear. And yeah. uh, concerning this uh, uh, cue from a film, The Rock, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how that made your favorites. Well, this th- this movie is a lot of fun if you haven't seen it. It's uh, Nick Cage and Sean, Sean Connery. And Sean Connery plays right. a character who – go ahead. No, I, I, I'm just saying right. Yeah, Sean Connery was in it. Yep. Yeah, and he played a character who is kind of James Bond-like, actually, who's kind of disgraced. But um, so – the, it's definitely an action film, a Michael Bay early film, and it's just got so much going on in it. And since Hans Zimmer is doing the next Bond, you know, and everybody's been talking about this, what kind of score he's going to deliver, and you know, there are different opinions about him doing the film. But um, this, I thought, kind of represents some of the earlier work, and it's just got like a really strong melody at the beginning, and then it segues into this kind of rhythmic melody that is very um, exciting and i could sort of see this sort of flavor going into the new bond film and and you know and interpolating maybe some of the bond films you know wow. the bond theme and all that so uh, this kind of gives me hope let's put it that way oh okay i love it yeah let's let's have a listen to this then this is from the film called the rock the cue is called uh, hummel gets the rockets and it's uh let's see you had written here it was nick lenny smith harry gregson Williams and uh, and finally Hans Zimmer. Let's have a listen.
you told us about the um, the great story of how your your first uh, motion picture script got produced uh, for a film called Goodbye Lover, and I said that there was something special uh, behind that that we wanted to talk about. Um, I guess it's probably better coming from you than it would be from me. You want to tell us a little bit about why it's uh, maybe special actually to both of us, um, you know, the music from this movie? Well, I was quite <laughs> delighted when I found out who originally scored the film. But like I say, this was my first film. My first first thing I sold immediately went into production. And I had some meetings with the director, Roland Jaffe. And we were talking about, you know, I was trying to to – sort of segue into who's going to do the score because my favorite film composer of all time is John Barry mm-hmm. and Roland Jaffe had directed the Scarlet Letter before Goodbye Lover and lo and behold the composer was John Barry mm. so I thought oh this is great put a little you know a little bit of an earworm in, in there and sort of like <laughs> how about John Barry for the score Roland and um, he thought that well, John Barry is just he, he's a bit too expensive a- at the time. Goodbye Lover was supposed to be a, a lower budget film. Um, that was the original goal. But by the time everybody came aboard, the budget shot up. <laughs> but I was so um, it, so we had these conversations and Roland said, well, I'm thinking about um, Ennio Morricone's son for the score. Andrea Morricone, you know, they had worked together on Cinema Paradiso and maybe he would be a good choice. And I'm like, oh, okay. So time went by, and then somehow, it, probably on some music board, I saw that John Barry was doing the score, and I was elated. I bet. Because pro- probably the first John Barry score I had was probably Goldfinger or Thunderball, you know, mm-hmm. one of those two. And I just uh, adored John Barry. And I was, I'd go and hunt these obscure um, releases of his. I had a few record stores here in town. That, you know, I'd give them my list and they would watch for some of these tracks, you know, and actually one of these guys found a copy of Deadfall for me. And I was very excited. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, because it was hard to get. And um, not like today, because now you can find everything seemingly. But but at that time, you really had to hunt. You know, there was no Internet. You couldn't post things too much anywhere in the uh, early days, you know. And so. when, like I said, when John Barry was selected for this, I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, so I just kind of uh, did a little jig. It was like the most exciting thing <laughs> to me. <laughs> Probably more exciting than getting the film made. That's how crazy <laughs> I am. <laughs> I can understand that, really. I mean, it's so uh, so he's you see the announcement that he's announced uh, to work on the film. And, and then then what happens? Well, then, um, you know, I went in and, and did rewrites on the film. I went back and forth from Phoenix to L.A. several times to work with the director and some of his people on the film. And so I would keep in contact with um, some of his guys in the office. And so I asked one day, I'm like, oh, so how's that John Barry score coming along? And, uh, you know, there's kind of this brief moment of silence. And then, oh, well, good, good. Uh, you know, Roland likes it. They're just a couple little things that we'd like to adjust in it. And I'm thinking, oh, and we're talking thinking, about John Barry. Oh. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, because at this point in his career, John Barry was kind of known for being a little on the cranky side. Oh. And, and if you didn't like what he, you know, what he came up with, he would sometimes kind of walk away in a huff. So when I heard this, I was sort of like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. He said, yeah, it's just we want to make some of the scenes a little lighter in feel. You know, it's it's maybe a little too dark for what we want here. And I'm like, uh, OK. So then 
uh, I got an email from a friend of mine in LA and he's like, Oh, Ron, I hate to tell you this, but John Ottman's been hired to redo the score. And I'm like, what, what? And Aww. I was just so bummed out. I mean, I John Ottman's, he's a good composer, but you know, in my heart, he's not John Barry, you know, he's yeah. not my, my, my soundtrack God, you know? So, um, so to, to, to kind of move the story along, did, are you under the impression that that uh, Barry had written a a an entire store, uh, excuse me, an entire score for the entire movie that that had actually you know their recording session had taken place? He had written an entire score for the film. Wow. It exists. It's out and, there somewhere. And it was recorded. It was recorded. The whole thing. Oh. Yes. Now we uh, just to let our listeners know, and I think we've actually on a previous episode may have played it. There are some demos that were uh, available. Um, but not the entire score. And that would be really interesting. And, you know, you can hold out hope because there's been a couple of examples recently where entire scores are recorded, and not used that have ultimately been, uh, released. I mean, I'm thinking about golden child and, um, wasn't there another one? I can't remember right offhand, but, uh, but I know golden child is an example of a score that wasn't used and, but it wasn't the entire thing was recorded. And eventually it, it saw the light of day and it was released. So we can only hope on this one, I guess. We can only hope and pray, Frank. Yes. Yeah. I would love so, to see it redu- uh, yeah. released. So, so we're going to play the demo, but we're also going to uh, to play a, a piece of what uh, uh, Ottman did. Do you want to lead us into that and tell us a little bit about uh, the, the two two choices you picked out? Well, as far as I understand, there were seven different um, demo themes, and I have them all. One of and this is my favorite because it's heavy on the sax. And when I wrote Goodbye Lover, I was almost, you know, exclusively listening to John Barry scores. Mm. Body Heat was a big one in here, and and this kind of reminded me of Body Heat because of okay. the sax influence on here. And um, John Ottman came on board, and you can hear his theme is quite nice. It's a little playful, it's a little different, um, and it's used throughout the whole score. So it's an interesting contrast. And um, I'd like to know how it sort of compares to, you know, what John Barry's cues were for those same sequences. That would be interesting to know. Yeah. And well, maybe someday uh, we will find out. I know. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, let's uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. We'll first play the uh, a demo recording that was done by John Barry for the film Goodbye Lover, and then we will follow that up with the actual score that ended up being used. Um, by John Ottman, and it's uh, called Main Title and Sandra's Theme. So uh, let's have a listen and we'll compare. Thank you. 
So I'm curious, did, did you, did it ever occur to you to say, hey, I, I'd like to sit in on the scoring session when you found out it was John Barry, or you just didn't have that kind of clout at that point? Really, it was more a matter of clout. And I didn't, at the initial time, I didn't even know what was happening, you know. By the oh, time wow. I found out, he might have even have already done it, to tell you the truth. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I didn't even know. And, you know. I was a newbie writer. I didn't have, like you say, any power or any control. Nobody knew who I was. Right. So it's kind of like, eh, this guy. Yeah, exactly. You know? Okay. Yeah. Well, what, um, what's in your future? What, uh, what can we look forward to coming down the road, Ron? Um, I, I know you have that, that film that's out currently on streaming services right now, but, uh, uh, we can you can mention that, but uh, anything else that's coming down the pike? You mentioned working on a novel. Is any other things that we can look forward to? Well, I have another script that is probably my favorite um, screenplay called Donuts with Jerry, and it's kind of a um, com- comedic um, piece. It's really more of a dramedy, I suppose. But it's kind of based. The main character is based on a good friend of of mine and my wife's. And uh, he was a real person. His name is Jerry, of course. And Mm -hmm. uh, this it's kind of what he would do in a certain circumstance. And the script has been very well received. We've been um, talking to various people about it. We'd really like to get it produced. Um, It's just a matter of finding the right elements to come together. 
like anything in LA, it's finding somebody who gets really excited about it, who can, you know, drag in some of the more important players. Yeah, and make it happen. Well, at least the good news exactly. is, and we were talking about getting into screenwriting, at least the good news is there are so many, as a result of the internet and streaming services and things like that, there are so many outlets now for distribution of your of your work that uh, it's not nearly as uh, as limited as it was before. So uh, that's good news, you know. I would think that that helps. It it is in one sense. It's kind of it's just that there are so many so much competition out there now in the marketplace. You know, there's so much content, as I like to say, on streaming platforms and everything that it's hard for people to choose what to watch. You know, it so is. everything everything gets kind of diluted. You know, and it's all reflected in the payments to people now. Um, and the, you know, there's the union system, then there's the non-union system, and there are mm. thousands of people working in the music in the film industry who are not union, right. and they can struggle, you know. Yeah, 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 it can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, Ron, I have to tell you, I've just absolutely thoroughly enjoyed getting a chance to to know you a little bit better and getting a chance to talk with you and, and to share with our audience some of the great film scores that you. Uh, shared with us today I, I i've had a great great deal of fun i hope you have as well oh it's been a blast but i, I do have to, i would would be remiss if i didn't say if you have a family check out the boy the dog and the clown on all the streaming platforms it's it's came in went into release on december 3rd so it's out there if, if you like family films and uh you like clowns <laughs> not evil clowns this is a great clown this is a Cirque du Soleil clown um, All right. a, a great actor who plays uh, the clown um, excellent uh, and I'll, uh, I'll highlight that on our Facebook page as well uh, the boy the dog and the clown is the name of the film and yeah, I would highly encourage you to check it out uh, thanks again Ron for your time and, and you put a lot of effort into this and preparing for it and I, I am grateful for that as well uh, do appreciate it Oh, you are welcome, Frank. It's been a lot of fun. I really uh, like sharing my favorite scores. Well, some of them. <laughs> so many I had to leave out, Frank. I know, I know. I was so rough on you. But, uh, hey, we got a lot of a lot of good ones in there today. That's, uh, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Uh, my thanks again to, to Ron for uh, putting forth all the effort to do the show today. And my thanks, obviously, to all of you listeners for uh, supporting the program. We very much appreciate it. With that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?